Well, it is good to be here with the gathered community of Christ at Sojourn Church this morning. So, and it's a privilege to be able to come before you again and to open up the Word together and teach it. My name's Eric. I'm one of the members here at Sojourn Church. My wife and I have been here about a year and a half now, transplants from several different places, primarily for her, Georgia, and primarily for me, the Midwest. So it's exciting to be here in Virginia to find a church home with all of you for the last year and a half. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And I want to start with just a quote that's probably familiar to most of us. So you can probably finish this. Nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. Right. Benjamin Franklin said that a little while ago. So this can kind of be funny. And in reality, though, we, we treat it death as something we want to hold at a distance. We try to minimize our involvement or our closeness or our exposure to death. This passage that we're going to look at in Hebrews this morning brings us face to face with death. And it points us to a living hope. So as a way of reminder, you know, I think that we need to understand the audience that the author wrote this original letter to. So the audience is experiencing suffering, shame, difficulty, potentially loss of life, loved one die, loved ones dying, them or others being put into prison because of their identification with Christ. The temptation facing them is that would life be better if we turned back to what we had before Christ and fit better into society and the society would not be coming down on us like it is now. We've been waiting for Jesus and he hasn't come yet. Yet we're going through this intense pain and difficulty. Where is he? He promised he would come. Should we jump back into what's more tangible and sure that we can put our own hands on and try to better understand. And I think we can face that same temptation in our own lives today as we walk through life trying to fix our gaze and our hope on Christ amidst a world that pulls us into many, many, many other directions. So if you don't have a Bible, before we get into the text, there's a young man at the back that has copies of the New Testament. So if you would raise your hand, he can come and feed one to you that you can use during the service. And if you don't have one at home at all, or you don't own one, we want to invite you to take that as a gift that you can keep God's word in your home available at any point in time in the future. So we're going to pick up in verse 15 at the conclusion or climax of what Mike taught on last week. And in the introduction to what we're going to see in the rest of the text this morning. So it starts with a therefore, and then there's four sections of the text this morning. First is going to be the promised inheritance. Second is going to be the provision of blood. Third is the perfect sacrifice. And fourth is the passionate anticipation. So kind of those four P's. Promised inheritance, provision of blood, perfect sacrifice, and passionate anticipation. We're going to read, instead of up front the whole text, we're going to read each section as we get to it. But before we do, I want to go ahead and pray for us this morning. So pray with me. Lord, we thank you. Everything that we sung about this morning, that you have made a way by your grace and mercy 
to cleanse us from our sin, to forgive us our sins, and not only that, but to raise us to new life through the blood sacrifice, the willing blood sacrifice of Christ. Lord, we pray that that would completely change and shape our lives, our hearts, our passions, our pursuits, and the activities that we have in this life, and the way we relate to others, and what we do, what we say. Lord, I just pray that your word would be clear this morning. Lord, that you would help my mouth speak in a way that's understandable, so that it can be explained for what you originally and intentionally mean to the audience and to us as well. And then as we wrestle with this text, as we understand its meaning, Lord, then we wrestle with the text and seek to follow you and walk and step with your spirit as we try to apply it in many, many different ways in our lives. So thank you for this morning. Thank you for the blood of Christ, the redemption through him, and the inheritance that will come when he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. So first... We're going to take a look at the promised inheritance. So just one verse to get us started. We're going to get started nice and slow as we get into the text. So it says, therefore, in verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So by way of quick summary and continuation from last week, the old covenant could not purify the conscience of the believer. It could just cover the sin, cover their flesh and what they had committed. The new covenant, in contrast, by the blood of Jesus, actually purifies the conscience of the believer, the one who trusts in Christ. It sets him free to serve Christ from his whole being from his whole conscience. Therefore, because Jesus is able to do this by his blood, he is able to be the mediator of the new covenant. So he is greater. Now in this verse that we see in 15, the author is pointing out two effects of that or two impacts. Number one, redemption is possible now. We see that. Therefore, he's mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, it draws them out. So Jesus' blood now redeems them and saves them, draws them back to himself. So in in Romans chapter 3, it says that this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, or to the audience that he was writing to, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God had covered over sins that were committed in the Old Testament by the sacrificial system that he put in place. And now that Christ has been sacrificed, a willing sacrifice with his blood, redemption, therefore, is now possible for those in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and those under the New Covenant. So redemption is now possible because of Christ. We also see that an eternal inheritance is promised. And we're going to get to that a little bit later this morning. So God brought his people from something from the old covenant to something to the new covenant through the blood of Christ. The question is, what is the basis of going from this to this? So that's going to bring us into section two, the provision of the blood. 
So I'm going to read the first two verses of this section in verses 16 and 17. If you guys want to follow along with me. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So the author is using a familiar analogy, comparing the covenant to a last will and testament of God. And that's something that we can recognize and understand as well. So if you think in our culture today, if you have children... You may try to set up a will for those children's provision in the case that you die, in the case that your life ends. And in that will, you might put all of your possessions, you might put all of your finances, you might even put, if they're young children, who's going to be their caregiver at the point at which you die or pass away, so that your children are fully cared for. And we understand that. We can see that in a will and a testament in our culture. So that's a similar thing that we see that he's explaining in the text here. The will is initiated at the death of the transactor. So it took that death to initiate the transaction of our inheritance, strictly kind of a legal sense. So if you are a parent and you have kids, they don't get anything from your will until you die, until your life has ceased, and then is complete ownership transfer as you've defined in your will to your children. The other thing that the will points out here in the text that we understand from our culture is that that will is is final. That will seals the inheritance that goes to the children. So in other words, there's not a point in time where you put in your will that they'll receive this when I die. Oh, but in the future, now it comes back to me. You're dead. You're passed away. Yet, your children fully retain ownership until they choose to do otherwise. So that seals that transaction at the will. So we can see the ownership transfer through death of the transactor and the author's transition to this example of explaining the covenant in something that would be familiar to them. And we also then take a look not only just at the will, But now we take a look at the Old Covenant. So the author uses another familiar analogy, familiar uh, situation or comparison to the New Covenant now that we saw in the Old Covenant back then. So let me read the next few verses here in 1822. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the author points to two things in this description of the Old Testament. Number one, the initiation of the Old Covenant was used as a purifying agent. The blood was for the earthly place of holiness and for God's people. So when God's people came out of Egypt, the law was given to them. Then bulls and goats and animals were sacrificed as the initiation of that covenant. We've read most of that in this section. Now, in addition We see at the very last verse that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's a little unfamiliar with us here in this culture. We don't see the shedding of blood often. So I want to 
by way of reminder, take a look at a passage in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 to 31. Again, Leviticus 4, 27 to 31. This is a description of what a common person like you and I would have to do for a cleansing of our flesh or the forgiveness of our sins in the Old Testament. So starting in verse 27 in chapter 4, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with its finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. So that's, that's unfamiliar for us. To think how often I would have to bring a bull or a goat to the tabernacle to be sacrificed. Not just some way, there, some way over there behind a curtain where I can't really see, but I kind of understand what's going on. But literally like bring this animal that I have cultivated from my flock that is purely innocent and is without blemish to the altar and take a knife and kill the animal and allow its life blood to drain out fully while it's in my hand. That can paint a pretty strong picture, an awareness of our sin before a holy and a perfect God. And I know some of the stuff we're looking at this morning is heavy, but it's heavy for a reason. It's heavy because unless we understand the holiness of a perfect God and our sin and how depraved we are before him, then we'll never fully understand the good news of the gospel. And when they walked through that sacrificial system, that is what they understood as they did that time after time after time. This blood of this innocent animal is shed to cover me. In other words, I killed this innocent animal to make me clean. The audience would have been familiar with this system. They may have walked through some of it themselves. It pointed his people again and again, like I said, to the greatness and holiness of God, to their sinfulness before him. And it pointed to the perfect righteousness and perfect mercy of God who actually made a way for sin to be covered temporarily and would make a way for perfect redemption in the future. For those who are trusting by faith in the old covenant, this is going to cover me. I'm broken before a holy God, and there's got to be a way for me to be restored perfectly. I don't see it yet, but I know he wants me to continually do this, to cleanse my flesh. And I look forward to the day that he consummates it perfectly. So we understand, to some degree, I think, why death is required for justice but maybe not the full weight. But when we look externally, when we put ourselves in God's shoes as being someone who is wronged by someone or by something, we can understand 
that justice must be served. So imagine someone that has murdered someone very close to you, potentially. Maybe taken the life of your child. Maybe taken the life of your spouse intentionally. In that, you want justice. You want them to be punished for the sin they've committed against you. Or think of, there's so many movies that exemplify this, where you've got the bad guy in the movie does some such evil, difficult, painful things to people. Halfway through the movie, you're like, please bring judgment on this guy's head. I mean, he deserves to go through what the consequences are for his sin against these people. And then by the end of the movie, when that actually happens, and some of them, when it actually happens, you feel satisfied. You're like, yes, he got what he deserved. So we can understand kind of the need for a sacrifice or need for a death or at least need for consequences when we've been wronged against. Again, more familiar to the audience if they walked through the sacrificial system. Imagine if our church actually operated that way. If we were in the Old Covenant, just, just as an example. So instead of Justin, instead of Tom and Lord willing Edward coming up here to teach and to lead and to shepherd and to counsel and help us follow Christ and point rise to Christ, like their primary role was to bring the animal forward with you, to sacrifice the animal with you and for you, and then one day a year to walk behind the curtain and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Like, that would be so very different. But thankfully, now in the new covenant, the awesome and overwhelming truth is that we don't have to do that anymore. Justin, Tom, and Edward don't have to do that anymore. We have the perfect blood of Christ. So let's read verses 23 through 26, where he contrasts the blood and the sacrificial system of the old covenant with Christ's blood in the new covenant. So verses 23 through 26, thus, so because there is without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So initially, the author is contrasting the priests in the Old Covenant with Jesus' priests in the New Covenant. Leads to a couple conclusions. First, Jesus put away sin once and forever, and Jesus will return, ushering the promised eternal inheritance. So eagerly anticipate him. So let's take a look first at Jesus' superiority that initiates and clinches the last will and testament of God. So to start us off, we see a much greater sacrifice is required, right, than a blood sacrifice from an animal. So think of analogy of, of like a hotel, so you can drive and buzz down the road on the interstate, find a $35 a night hotel, and you can stay in that hotel for the night and then get up and head on the next day. But imagine the quality of that hotel that you would experience. Melanie and I did this once, and literally when we were laying down on the bed, mosquitoes just kind of flew up from under the bed, 
drifted towards us all night long, or at least as long as we were awake, we're like, mosquitoes, mosquitoes, mosquitoes. I don't even remember if like all the plumbing fixtures worked, but it was 35 bucks a night. And so we were pinching our pennies and we made it through and itched a little bit on the way home. But now think about like the finest downtown Washington, D.C. hotel, something like the Ritz-Carlton. It's probably more than $35 a night, unless you have all these fancy points you build up, right? Probably more like 500, maybe 1,000. If you go to the penthouse, maybe it's 1,500 bucks a night. But think of the quality of hotel that you're staying at, the furnishings, the bed. I mean, some of these beds are pretty amazing if you pay $1,500 a night. So I'm told. I haven't been there, but so I'm told. So in that kind of contrast, we can see how heaven is such a greater place, a perfect sanctuary than the earthly sanctuary. Therefore, to get into heaven and get into the presence of God in his sanctuary takes a perfect sacrifice, not the sacrifice of animals. But how is it that Jesus' blood was sufficient to pay our penalty? Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So in contrast to our utter unrighteousness, Christ's righteousness is completely perfect. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. Therefore, in God's eyes, Jesus is perfect. His sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice was perfect to the extent that it could put away sin once and forever. The covenant was consummated and clinched. Animal sacrifices were no longer needed. In other words, the entire hotel was paid for eternally. Not only was his blood sufficient to pay the penalty, but Jesus' blood was sufficient to enter God's presence himself one time only. So he died. Think of like the high priest walking into the old covenant, into the, into the behind the curtain once a year. Like he didn't offer himself. He couldn't offer himself. In fact, unless he followed the exact regulations of the law as prescribed by God, he may not even make it out alive through the curtain. And yet Jesus paid the penalty and was able then to raise from the dead and ascend to heaven perfectly into the perfect sacrifice. We see the evidence of the merit of his blood in the fact that he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven. And that is why a single substitutionary death was sufficient, because it was perfect. So does that stagger you, that his blood was sufficient perfectly? If not, let me bring it a little closer to home, maybe a little more personal. How often do you accuse yourself? How often are you accused by others? And how often do these accusations ring a note of truth in your life? I would argue from my experience that they often do ring a note of truth. But because he was raised, just like the application that Mike drew out last week, no longer does guilt and shame have to reign in our life because Jesus is our perfect mediator now and forever. So, sufficient to enter God's presence by himself In addition to that, it was sufficient to put away sin for all time for those who have trusted, who do trust, and who will trust in him. So this idea of put away that we see here in verse 26, at the end of the ages, to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself is the idea of nullification or abolition is one that we commonly hear in our culture today is to regard as not or to declare it invalid. So sin is not valid for you anymore if you're under the blood of Christ. It's like the author declares in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has your sin been removed from you. In other words, no matter how far east I go, west is still over there. No matter how far west I go, east is still over there. They shall never co-locate. It is invalid for you. And in putting away sin for you fully and for us fully, he has given us his righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed, is the technical term, the theological term, imputed or given to us. Again, not like the priest on the annual day of atonement. In other words, you stay here. I'm going to go into this place behind the curtain. Again, make the sacrifices. Hopefully I make it out alive. And in that one day year when he actually made it out alive because he followed the perfect regulations he was supposed to, the people cheer because they realize he's alive, which means... The merit of the animals was sufficient to cover our sins for this year. So it's completely different. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't go behind the curtain and say, you stay out here and I'll come back out when it's all done ready. He brings you through the curtain into God's presence with himself because God's righteousness and righteous law was met in the blood of Jesus. You receive and are given his righteousness. Therefore, you are clean and can enter the presence of God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' blood and his resurrection, the covenant is clinched. Jesus is the covenant clincher. As we were playing around this morning, Jesus put the wrestling move on death. And on sin forever. It's done. And having his righteousness, he can now bring us into the heavenly and perfect sanctuary with him before our perfect father. So, therefore, we have been, received, we have been redeemed. We can receive the promised eternal inheritance. So wait eagerly for him. Let's take a look at verses 27 through 28. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the first point the author is bringing out, death occurs once for all mankind. But death is not the end. Let me say that again. Just like taxes, kind of, death is going to occur for all of us. But death is not the end. One author put it, death ends one's opportunity for reconciliation with God. So at death, you're either reconciled or you're not. At death, either your blood has paid the penalty for your sin and will forever in separation from God, or Christ's blood has paid the perfect penalty for your sin forever in redemption to God. 
And when he returns, it talks that, about that in this next chapter. So death is not the end, and Christ will return. And when he returns, all knees will bow, either willingly and out of joy and out of delight, or out of recognition and fear, the perfect, holy, good, glorious authority of the coming king. And then eternity begins. So I'm convinced that this is the high point and the climax of the author's argument in this chapter. Death is not the end because of the blood of Christ. So eagerly wait. Because Jesus is going to raise to new life those who are eagerly anticipating for him. So they're going to receive, remember we took a look at verse 15. They're going to receive the promised eternal inheritance. This is that promised eternal inheritance inheritance when Christ returns. So for the audience and for us, as the audience is having to undergo difficulty, pain, and suffering, as some of us are having to undergo difficulty, pain, suffering, persevere. Know that in the end, you're going to be redeemed by the blood of Christ to enter the perfect and heavenly sanctuary forever. Press on in your struggle And passionately anticipate his return. So what does this mean? To passionately anticipate his return. What does this look like? It looks like an intense and an anxious expectation. That's kind of what that root word means in the original language. Intense and anxious expectation. And it's an active waiting. It's not a passive waiting. So if you compare it to like, if you go to lunch after church this afternoon, and you sit down at a table, you're waiting passively for the server to come and take your order, or come and deliver your food, or come and take care of you. The waiting that it's talking about in this passage is not that passive waiting. It's an active waiting. So when is the last time that you actively waited in anticipation for something or for someone? Try to think about that. I'm going to give you an example. For those who have kids, think about the birth of your first child. Or for those who don't have kids, think about the movies that you've seen where somebody's having a baby, right? There's this anxious anticipation that around nine months in the future, this blessing is going to be bestowed on their life with all of its joys and delights. And as we know as parents, all of its struggles and frustrations. We won't go into those right now. Um, So first, as you're anxiously anticipating this child, you're reading books, you're asking questions, you're painting and preparing the new baby's room, you're trying to decide the perfect name for this new child. And honestly, for Melanie and I, they wouldn't let us out of the hospital until we named the baby. So the baby was born, the baby was two days old, we're like, we still can't get that perfect name. Finally, the hospital said, you can't leave with this baby until you pick out the name, so we chose one and we think it turned out pretty good. Um, so other things you're trying to do, you're trying to get the right color, trying to get the right size and the types of the clothes for the newborn. You're picking out the perfect take home outfit. I can't tell you how long it took Melanie to get that right outfit for the baby to fit in the car seat for the 10 minutes that he goes in and sits in the car. And that's about all that anybody sees him is that 10 minutes, except us at home. So you're anxiously anticipating, you're actively waiting for this to come in the future, eight or nine months down the road. For those that, uh, that have struggled with the desire to have a child, 
um, but can't. And Melanie and I walked through that for five or six years. Um, that can be a painful time. Um, I would say in a similar manner, you're, you're anxiously anticipating the blessing of that child to come that you don't yet know. You're going to the doctors. You're trying to figure out what's going on. You're taking medicine. You're asking questions. You're praying. You're digging into your heart like, Lord, there's something wrong in me. Finally, he convinces you there's nothing wrong in me. It's a perfect God that has a perfect plan and a perfect time for each thing. And then you finally yield to that. And throughout all of it, you're just crying and crying and crying, trying to understand, but ultimately trusting in God. And so I think about that time for us, like if we hadn't walked through that time of of infertility, we would probably not be able to have Wesley with us right now. And honestly, like I can't imagine and I don't even want to fathom what life would be like without Wesley. Most of you know him. I think our family is not known as the Taylors. (laughs) Our family is known as the Wesleys. Um, So he was adopted through that process. Um, And because we anxiously anticipated what God said was good and walked through him with it and tried to figure it out, we have been given the blessing of our oldest child. So in a small picture, an earthly picture, similar to the anxious anticipation waiting as we're struggling, God, we know this is good. We know you are good. Help us to persevere in this and trust you and follow you. So what else does this look like? Um, to anxiously anticipate God returning, Jesus returning, the consummation of the ages. So when you're faced with daily activities or lifetime decisions or pursuits, make them looking forward to this day when he's going to come. In other words, make this the priority as you're making decisions now, this being the return and ultimate return of Christ. Think practically, like, what does it mean to spiritually try to set a plan. Like, I want to know this God. So what does that mean? Well, I probably need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to get in community. I need to evangelize. Like, what does that look like? And be intentional to try to pursue this God that loves you an anxious anticipation of his return. Think about how you spend your time, how you spend yourself and how you spend your resources to want to know this God and to make him known that you want to actually give your life for his sake knowing that suffering may come, but glory will come with the dawn of Christ, much like with the original audience was suffering. And also, you want others to know this God that saves and redeems and will return. It's an exclusive pathway to the perfect sanctuary in heaven through Christ's blood and his alone. You want others to know that when you're ha- for example, when you're having a baby, do you keep it quiet? What do you think? Audience participation. No, thank you. When you're getting married, do you keep it quiet? Do you have a little quiet ceremony and leave everybody else out? No, when you graduate from college, right? Do you keep that quiet or do you have a big party? Party, yes, get away from that no word. 
Um, so yes, yeah, so you want to tell everyone you know and everyone that you see about those joyous things happening in your life. You want them to come with you into that joy and into that celebration. In the same manner, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to realize that many around us and many in the world have no idea or don't, let's just say they don't know, first of all, this king that's going to return that brings redemption. Some of them in the world have no idea and have never been told this gospel that we see presented here. Some even don't even have a Bible that they can read and understand because it's not in their language. There are entire nations of people who have never heard about Christ. How many Bibles do you have around your house? I think we've got, what, 15, 20 different translations, different study Bibles, different commentaries. So we've been equipped well in the word of God because of the blessing of where he has brought us and taught us and where we live now. So take that out to those who have never heard that have no representation of the word and no image or model of a Christian and no testimony of a Christian in their lives. Does that stagger you that there are many that have never heard? I think the estimates are one and a half, two and a half billion people have never heard the name of Christ. Does that affect you? If you are waiting in eager anticipation of his return, you want all people to know about this amazing coming king. You want them to share in the same joy. So plan your life from this expectation. Set your priorities from this expectation and give your life for Jesus, for the coming king. If you are not waiting in eager expectation, the question I would ask is why not? Like what has a hold of your heart and your life And what lures you into that apathy? I think often we can abuse the idea of heart idols. Not that they're not real. Not that they're not true. But we can say in our lives, well, you know, I can keep this in my life because it doesn't really occupy the place that Christ does in my heart. So it's okay. I can do this. I can do that. I can go here. I can go there. Brothers and sisters, that is a slippery slope. And we have a culture with numerous industries bent on either selling us goods or selling us ideas that say they will deliver and they will provide what only Christ can. So how much time, how much effort, and how many resources do we spend on consuming these goods? Not even realizing that our heart in reality, yeah, we don't think they've occupied the place in our heart that God should, but in reality, our heart has slowly drifted so that these things do take a priority in our lives and hearts which which lures us into the apathy of not looking at christ and his return just like we looked in hebrews chapter 2 therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it so instead of paying a close attention to what we've heard we can often say, well, how much have I done? Is it just enough? Is my heart just enough right where it needs to be so I can still enjoy 
these other things, and they're not really that big of a deal anyway. No. Like, give it all to Christ. He is worth it, right? You and your redemption through him that he has paid, it is worth it to set aside other things to anxiously anticipate and desire his return. And the people around you and the people in the world who have never heard the gospel are worth it. Are worth it. Even in my life, I can get so distracted. And Lord, when I recognize that, brothers and sisters, I just have to confess and repent and say, God, forgive me. I've missed it. I've missed it. This has become so important. I didn't even realize it was happening. But thank you for your grace and your mercy for convicting my heart and setting me free to serve you perfectly with a clean conscience that we looked at last week and go to where you have me go. So like we said at the beginning, we know that death will occur for us all unless Jesus potentially comes back sooner. But we don't know how death will happen. We don't know when death will happen. But the question is, how should we live now? I shared this quote last time, and I think John Piper has done a very good job of summarizing the idea that the author is communicating to his audience. He says, when you know the truth about what happens to you after you die and you believe it and you are satisfied with all that God will be for you in the ages to come, that truth makes you free indeed, free from the short, shallow, suicidal pleasures of sin and free for the sacrifices of mission and ministry that cause people to give glory to our Father in heaven. In other words, there is something that is so greater that if we see it and if we believe it, he allows us to enter into it with him, the ministry and the mission that he calls his church to. A pastor that I'm familiar with um, said it this way, speaking to people like you and I sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, people that consider themselves Christian. He says, you can either die in your religion or you can die in your devotion. So you can die in your religion or you can die in your devotion. Last week, uh, we were able by just some wonderful friends last weekend that took care of our kids here in Virginia. Uh, we were able to travel back to Oklahoma for a good friend's wedding. Um, and the amazing, beautiful picture of this wedding is that it was a unification of himself, which was a close friend and a dear girl that we somewhat knew, and our close friend's daughter that was five years old. Um, three, three and a half years ago, his previous wife contracted a, a very rare form of, of cancer. Uh, and we walked through that with them from a distance somewhat. But then the last week or so, we were able to be in, <clears throat> in Oklahoma with them and sitting with her in her, in her uh, hospital room with her family, with uh, his family, um, with her daughter and with himself. And that was, that was a, a tough time um, the last days that she had were very hard as she struggled to, with all of her might to bring in about 30 breaths every minute to see how long God would have her live. 
And we were praying for healing on some level. But on the other level, we were praying for, like, God, take her quickly. This is, a, this is a painful thing she's walking through. But the way that she lived those last few weeks was hard, but it was beautiful. And it was sweet at the same time. You see, in her devotion, her prayer <clears throat> was that she would be dangerous for the Lord. Was that her life would count for the sake of others coming to know the perfect God and King that had saved her. It didn't exactly turn out like she thought it would with these grand ideas of adventure and ministry and mission. But it turned out in a way that impacted thousands upon thousands for the sake of the gospel. Today, people are still coming to know Christ because because of the way that she died. We want to live that way. We want to live making much of our king. And we want to die making much of our king, knowing that death is not the end. So I'm a little emotional this morning, not because we lost a dear and a close friend to cancer, though that is saddening. But I get more emotional because she is there already. And she has ushered in, God has ushered in through her life thousands more. She is fully restored. Cancer is finally and fully defeated in her. The pain and the sickness wrought from sin, instead of just being pain and sickness and difficulty and death, resulted in many new lives for eternity. So brothers and sisters... My exhortation to you this morning, and I think we see this clearly in the text throughout Hebrews, and as we get to the application portion of his message in these last few chapters there in chapter 10, I think he makes this very clear. Spend your life for our merciful, our glorious, and our righteous King who will return, and for the sake of the world to know his name. And I need you to help me spend mine as well. And that brings us to the Lord's Supper. Again, I know this has been a heavy section of the text as we've taken a closer look at death. But it brings a glorious living hope in Christ. So each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember our provision for forgiveness for redemption and our inheritance because of the coming king. So when we take the bread and the cup this morning, remember that your sin cost Jesus his life. And Jesus willingly and joyfully laid down his life to redeem you perfectly. So you are now righteous because of the representation of the blood that we take this morning. Again, the blood, the cup that we're going to take doesn't do anything special for you. It's a remembrance. It's a representation to help remind us of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. And we remember that Jesus will return to usher you into his presence forever and ever. May this be the banner over your life. And may you help me and help one another have it be the banner over all of our lives and over our church as a whole.
For those that are here this morning who have not accepted Christ as their Savior, still trying to ask questions, rather than partaking of the Lord's Supper, just to go through the motions. Instead, ponder, question, ask, dialogue, debate, but don't be apathetic. The end of the ages has occurred. We see that in the text. God's covenant has been consummated in Jesus. We are in the last days. We don't know when our last day on earth will be or when he will return, but his offer of salvation because he loves you, he knows you perfectly, and he sacrificed his life for you, and he raised a new life and will bring you to new life in heaven. That offer, salvation, and inheritance is open now. It's open now, and it's open today to him. So pray and ask him. Give him your life. Confess your sins. Repent and turn. Put your faith and your trust in him. Be redeemed and have an eternal inheritance in heaven. Don't delay. Now, here in a minute, I'm going to pray. There's going to be servers at the back on both sides and servers in the front on both sides. So after I pray, feel free when you're ready to go to the back or to the front and partake of the Lord's elements. So let me go ahead and, and pray for us. And I'm going to kneel, so if it looks weird, I'm okay. I'm not passing out or anything. Lord Jesus, Lord, you are king and you are God, and you have, by your perfect blood, your death on the cross, confirmed because of your ascension and your resurrection, Lord, that you bought our lives. You redeemed us. You transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in Christ, through Christ. Lord, thank you. We pray that as we take the elements this morning, that it would be that reminder of what you have accomplished. And not only that reminder of what you have accomplished, but that reminder of the fact that you will return. You are returning and you bring with you the inheritance of your people by your grace and by your mercy. So, Lord, spend our lives for your sake. May they be lives full of passionate anticipation of the coming King. So that when we receive and find you fully, Lord, it'll be that much more glorious. That we would set aside our earthly pleasures and treasures and lives now and take up the life that you've called us to in heaven. And may we help one another do so. And Lord, may we look forward to the day when you're coming. In Jesus' name, amen.